This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. David Bertolt is the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival uh, and is today launching his fifth and final program for, uh, the, for Brisbane. And David, good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning, Richard. Great to talk to you. Now, uh, one of the many events that you've got in your uh, kind of final program at Brisbane Festival uh, is a vast multi-art form event Invisible Cities, which is taking over an entire warehouse. You're essentially creating um, your own theatre for this event and, I believe, a winged victory for the Sullen are one of many artistic collaborators on that event. Yeah, there are collaborators from around the globe and, as you say, the production is so big we had to make our own theatre, which is a, a thousand-seat pop-up theatre in a, in a big warehouse in a, in, a, you know, in a suburb of Brisbane. Um, it's called Invisible Cities, uh, which is um, uh, kind of inspired by Calvino's great novel. Uh, and it's created by 59 productions in London who are probably the world leaders in digital storytelling and projection mapping. They were responsible for that extraordinary visual work at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics, for example, as well as all the video work for War Horse and all sorts of things. Um, and that great choreographer from Belgium, City Labier Jacare, and Ron Bear Dance Company from um, the UK, probably the uh, most um, compelling of the contemporary dance companies in London, um, and the full company of Ron Bear Dance Company. So it, it, it is, it, it's a production that's probably the, the most ambitious that the festival has ever attempted with teamed up with partners in um, Manchester and London and Shanghai and Hong Kong and Kuwait to pull it off. It's in its previews at the moment at Manchester Festival and uh, opens in a couple of days and then we'll come to Brisbane for its exclusive season. So we're thrilled. Um, it, it, it involves like 80,000 litres of water, for example, <laughs> um, which, which um, become part of this extraordinary epic set. Uh, so, uh, as well as a spectacle, it, I think will redefine what is possible in, in live performance. Now, one of the reasons I'm intrigued by that work, obviously, uh, I, as I said, the, the band A Winged Victory for the Sullen fascinate me, but it, it also, having been uh, at several Brisbane festivals recently, that notion of kind of digital storytelling and how it can bring the stories of whether it's invisible cities to life or the stories of a city to life. Uh, Yes, I am a Melbourne broadcaster and this is a show primarily focused on the arts in Melbourne, but given the arts ecology, given that work can travel between cities and what is presented in one city can then also spark ideas in another city also really intrigues me from a, I guess, from a professional point of view. And that notion of using digital storytelling to bring hidden stories or old stories to life is something that really resonates given a work that I saw again uh, at Brisbane Festival not so long ago. Uh, you bought, you, working with a team of artists, the festival brought to life stories of uh, the river that flows through Brisbane, First Nation stories. I saw footprints on water, which was this magical image uh, 
talk, which spoke to the fact that some stories can be kind of forgotten and washed away so quickly by the tide, but other stories endure. How important is it for you as the artistic director of Brisbane Festivals, Brisbane Festival, to make sure that the First Nation stories of Brisbane and its surrounds are enduring and can be told and shared through the arts? I think it's totally central. And that, that project last year that you're referring to was called River of Light. And it was a huge kind of light and laser spectacle on the water using water as a screen shot up into the air, but also the surface of the river itself. And three times every night through the festival, we told a dreamtime story of the creation of the river itself. And, you know, remember the city is called the River City and it was told by a Yagara and Torbal um, uh, man here um, who had the cultural authority to tell that story. They're two of the central tribes here in this area. And uh, we're going to do that project again this year, River of Lights, but with a new story told again by Shannon Ruska, that Yagara and Torbal man. And this time... Uh, you know, last year we realised about half a million people saw that last that event last year, and 99.9% of them would never have heard of that Dreamtime story um, of the creation of the river itself. This year, Shannon will be telling a story of tribal life around the river just before the Europeans arrived, and it's an extraordinary story of how the Europeans came across what we now know as the Brisbane River. But curiously. I've discovered it's actually not a very well-known story in Brisbane, yet it's the kind of European foundation story of Brisbane, if you like. And Shannon tells this story very much from an Aboriginal perspective. And we're just at the early stages of creating that now, <clears throat> laying down the soundtrack and Shannon's storytelling. And I think that will be spectacular on the river. And in a way, it, it forms the core of the festival because it's on three times a night, every night, for half a million people. And I think that's a really important thing. Now, as I said, the, the, the notion of the arts ecology is something we talk a, a lot about in the sector and that notion of cities being interconnected and certainly festivals are interconnected. Uh, a work that I saw at uh, Brisbane Festival last year, also Dust, for example, by Dance North later came to Melbourne and audiences out at uh, kind of Monash got to see it for, uh, and it, it's also gone on elsewhere. You've got a new Dance North work in the program again this year as well. This is a, a company who are really doing some extraordinary extraordinary work, I think partially because they're of their relative isolation. Yeah, they're from Townsville in Brisbane, and it's the fourth year in a row, uh, Townsville in Queensland, rather, and it's the fourth year in a row we've presented uh, one of their premier works. And and I must say, it's been so satisfying that after each of those um, uh, shows, those productions have gone off, off to tour the world, and they're still touring. Uh, this new show is called Communal Table, which we've commissioned, uh, and it's a very different experience. It's actually a, a food experience as much as a dance experience with three-course three, three course meal and conversation as well. It's kind of a curated conversation that you have around the table with a dancer and with about 10 people, and there are eight tables, so it's an experience for about 100 people a night. And the conversation is curated by John Armstrong, who's the um, global philosopher-in-chief of the School of Life, Alain de Bouton's, um uh, outfit. So I think it'll be a very special experience with eight dancers, eight top-line choreographers from around Australia uh, doing the, the kind of dance component of it. An utterly unique experience that I hope, again, will go on and have um, other outings around the world. 
Now, David, given that this is your fifth and final Brisbane festival, how has the festival grown and changed since you took over its reins? Uh, it's grown enormously, and I think by some measures it's, it's now the largest of Australia's major international arts festivals in that there are more events than any of the other major festivals playing to more people. Um, I, don't, I don't count the count the fringe festivals because they, they blow us all out of the water in terms of those kind of numbers but in terms of the major city festivals that's true and uh, I, I've enjoyed the balance those kind of big uh, epic works like Invisible Cities this year uh, and Peter Grimes the opera last year but also um, Brisbane doesn't have a fringe festival so I've, I've really loved being able to program the broad sweep of work uh, and uh broad-based public events, you know, like Sun Super River Fire, the city's biggest fireworks spectacular, but River of Light, and, and also down at River Stage, you know, some big concerts in, in that big outdoor amphitheatre there, four of them there this year, City in Colour from Canada doing its uh, doing an exclusive performance for us to, to wrap up the festival. Um, so I, I, I've enjoyed that broad sweep of things, and, and curating in a way that um, makes sense. Uh, and that gives it a personality which is quite unlike the other major festivals in, the, in terms of its um, sheer diversity. Now, as you said, uh, Brisbane doesn't have a fringe festival, so one of the things that Brisbane Festival then needs to do is kind of perhaps bring in works uh, that would otherwise perhaps be part of a fringe if there was one there. Let's talk briefly about the Theatre Republic program, which is this curated selection of independent works from around the rest of the country and, and some overseas highlights as well. Yeah, it's, it's one of our many hubs, and um, this year there are 17 um, productions from around the world. And, and in a sense, I guess you could say they're the, they're the cream of the crop of things that you would find otherwise in fringe festivals and put together in a way that I think makes sense in the, in the, in the, the fuller story of the festival. Um, things like Songs of Friendship from UK. Um, Leah Shelton, who's actually a local artist here with um, Bitch on Heat. Cassie Workman will be with us uh, in that wonderful piece of storytelling um, with Giantess. Um, and two pieces, again, from the UK, one called Orpheus and another called Eurydice uh, in a pair with spins on those two um, Greek myths. Since Ali died from Omar Musa, um, and um, uh, Big House Dreaming, too, from Declan, uh, who's, who was at Melbourne Fringe last year, actually, I think won Best Performance, I think, at Melbourne Fringe last year. Uh, and Joel Bray will be with us from Daddy, that uh, just premiered at uh, Urimboy in Melbourne just um, just a few um, months ago. So a real, real diversity of work. They're, they're kind of, in a way, boutique works, but they're all dealing with very big ideas, and that's what I really love about them. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with David Bertolt, the Artistic Director of Brisbane Festival, whose uh, fifth and final festival program uh, is being officially launched today, uh, and the festival itself running from the 5th to the 28th of September. So if the Melbourne chill is eating into your bones and you're thinking about an interstate trip, well, last week we were speaking about Darwin Festival, this week Brisbane Festival. It's definitely festival season is approaching and it's a good time to start planning those kind of cultural tourism trips north. David, 
David, in terms of tourism to the festival, uh, I know that different festivals, Adelaide, for example, is renowned for uh, having a large contingent of interstate audience members coming in. How significant is cultural tourism for your festival in Brisbane? More and more, actually. Um, by its very nature, Queensland is a bit of a tourist state and always has been. Uh, and the, the festival reflects that. Um, we a, a good 30% of our audience come from outside Brisbane. Um, and that's, you know, well over 100,000 um, bed nights, as they say, in the trade. Um, so that's, that's the statistic we're very happy with. Uh, and it's been increasing enormously, actually, in the last... Uh, few years as the festival genuinely takes over the city with you know lots of marquee events but, but as I've been saying lots of big public events to that draw in um, vast uh, numbers both of visitors and uh, and locals uh, as well mingling together so it's some, certainly something we've had our eye on closely and um, and it's it's been a very successful strategy in, in enlivening the festival in lots of ways. We've had a lot of stuff from the Asia-Pacific, a lot of work from the Asia-Pacific in recent years, and Brisbane has a very close relationship with the Asia-Pacific in, in, in various ways um, and for, has had for a long time. And, and this year we have uh, Chinese that Chinese superstar dancer and choreographer Yang Ping with uh, her new work, Right of Spring. She had a blast of a time here with uh, Under Siege, uh, which we um, presented the Australian premiere of uh, two years ago and then went off to Melbourne Festival. And um, so Right of Spring will be with us this year and it's Australian premiere and we're really looking forward to that as, as part of our ongoing relationship with the Asia Pacific. Now, in previous years, uh, the the program has had... There's been political themes running through it or environmental themes. Uh, Last year, you divided the program up into a series of acts uh, in the the way a theatre production might. This year, you've used three different themes of revels, revelations and romances as a way to shape the program. Uh, I want to just focus on uh, that idea, just to end with, on romance. Uh, As a festival director, do you need to be in love with your festival... And is it hard to be analytical about it? Yes, it is, because uh, it, it, um, it, because there are, there are lots of competing pools. You know, we've just been talking about tourism, for example, and in a way that's very much an economic driver. And, you know, we make studies about our economic impacts, of course, like all the festivals do, and we have to answer to that in some way. So, and you also then... You know, compete against broad, broad public appeal, appeal. You know, as, as a major event. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I, I, I really love the way, actually, that all of the various stakeholders, the artists, the audience, government, business sponsors, and so on, actually come to the party. It's a hugely collegial and collaborative atmosphere uh, in Brisbane, and that's something I've really loved, as you say, and. You know, we we have by far the highest level of business sponsorship in the country for any any major festival of any kind whatsoever. Um, you know, something like nine million dollars of of, um, of business sponsorship, which is huge. And I think that's a measure of how much the city itself and its business community um, and private donors uh, think. Uh, of the city and that's something that's been so encouraging to me in my time here. 
Well, it's certainly an intriguing program. There's lots for people to get their teeth into. We've only scratched the surface. There's live music. There's uh, briefs doing more outrageous and delightful work. There's a lot to unpack and explore. The Brisbane Festival is running from the 5th to the 28th of September. More details at brisbanefestival.com.au. It's the fifth and final festival for artistic director David Bertolt, who's been my guest this morning. David, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you've got about five dozen other media engagements this morning, so I'll let you go. <laughs> but I'm going to love them, Richard. Okay. <laughs> Great to talk to you. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye, mate. Triple R. I'm joined in the studio by Emily Tomlins and Joff, a.k.a. Joseph O'Farrell, um, who join us to talk about the cabin! Oh, the exclamation cabin. mark. <laughs> How do you pronounce an exclamation mark, John? Well, I feel like all, all the shows that I usually create have an exclamation mark. It's just like a thing now. I don't, I've given away full stops. Just exclamation marks after every you sentence. Mean, you have to yell it every <laughs> time. You, we're in the cabin. Yeah. <laughs> and I did wonder what. I know there's a kind of an old sketch online somewhere about kind of audio punctuation and <laughs> kind of like for full stops and so forth. And yeah. somewhere there is probably an excla- uh, an explanation of how to pronounce kind of a uh, uh, kind of a uh, kind of period with a stick coming out the top of it. But Maybe it's a scream. Maybe it's the cabin and then just ah! a... Yeah, exactly. So what is The Cabin? Well, The Cabin is a horror show written by kids for adults. So it's written by 200-plus school kids from around Australia and the UK, and it's been developed over the last kind of two and a half years to scare the pants <laughs> off adults and older children. Now, which automatically begs the question, are the same things that scare children the things that scare adults? Uh, I think, I think, no. I mean, I think some things are, but then I think there are some things that, that we adults get more scared of, particularly if they're coming from the minds of children. I think that's one of the scariest things, is seeing some of the stuff, some of the ideas that Joff brought to the room that, that kids had come up with and going, oh my God, this came from a 10-year-old? That's terrifying. You know, I think that's that's a really big part of it, um, is, is those kind of things, you know, our kids look at that, the kids who were in the show and go oh you know yeah yeah that's just you know that's an an imaginative kind of story and an imaginative um piece of art but adults look at that and go whoa okay yeah does that child need therapy (laughs) (laughs) what kind of what kind of fears are we we talking about here so essentially kind of it's all come from workshops from all a whole heap of schools youth drop-in centers kind of arts residencies that i've done in art centers um around lots of different stuff so it started off with urban myths and drawing creatures and then it went into designing the characters that the children play on stage with emily and i and then it went into sound effects and making the soundscape. So everything has come from the children's imagination. And essentially, once we had this huge, rich tapestry of ideas, drawings, designs by all these kids, Emily, Emily I and the creative team went into the room and started to piece it all together. So what you come to see at the Northcote Town Hall is a children's variety show hosted by the worst theatre wanker you've ever met. <laughs> I don't know. I've met a few. <laughs> well, it's all those people rolled into one, Richard, and you would know them. You can imagine. Um, who tries to host 
this children's variety show and things start to fall apart. <laughs> it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun, just the process of making the work. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's been this beautiful thing of this combination of some of the ideas and even some of the writing um, that the children came up with have gone just completely kind of uncut into the show and then others of of the kind of ideas and designs and and bits of writing and bits of story have then been... Uh, executed by professionals so it's this lovely kind of collaboration between people who are very new to the theatre and people who have been in theatre for a really long time um, and and people who are somewhere in in between so and it's very intergenerational as well um, which has been so much fun and we've got we're working with 10 uh, 10 young people aged between uh, 10 and 13 um, and so five each night five of them are on the stage with us and then we also have a um, disgruntled teen guitarist uh, who's 14 her name is Mariella and she's amazing so she's on stage with us every night playing guitar um, live in the show um, so yeah it's it's just been this beautiful kind of collaboration because the kids have been the kids that are on the stage with us have also been very involved in the kind of the final process of of making this show and our director Sarah Austin has been very very meticulous in making sure that everything that we do is demystified for them so that they're not scared at any point and of course when you're being the scarer you're not scared you know um, because you you own the the scaring or the horror Um, and so but but during that process it's also been really wonderful because not only is all of that being demystified for them but they're also learning how theatre's made and they're learning all of the secrets of the magic of theatre which has been really amazing for them too and amazing for us to kind of be witness to so and I'm wondering given that they're new to theatre and the young people you were working with Joff the ideas factory if you will behind the show perhaps new to theatre as well have they suggested stuff that has genuinely surprised both of you because if you're used to the conventions of theatre you probably then think within those conventions if you're not used to them I presume kids are throwing wild ideas at you going well can can we make this happen and, oh, and you go totally it's, yeah that's such a great point Richard because essentially what we're trying to put on um, is impossible. <laughs> uh, and we're bringing these creatures and these, you know, Steph O'Hara's done all the sound design and all these sounds and ideas that have come from the kids are these crazy, uh, ludicrous ideas and we've really been, okay, taking them on very seriously. So, Can you give us an example? Um, yep, yeah, maybe I could talk about the thermos. That was my idea. Oh, that was your idea. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of the well, one of the biggest beautiful ideas was in the first day of the process, someone drew um, a monster. And it's called the messy monster, and our mm. set designer uh, and uh, costume designer Daryl Cordell and uh, Emily Barry created from this drawing the messy monster, and the messy monster eats people's souls. So. Uh, the kids came together and made that soundtrack for what the messy monster sounds like when it eats uh, my soul. <laughs> and we've 
put that live on stage. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool, actually, because it's been an amazing challenge. I think that's the thing. You do you do sometimes think within the limits, particularly when you're doing independent theatre and you're like, we've only got this amount of money to work with and we've only got these kind of resources and we're working with absolute kind of guns. Like all of the designers and everybody who's involved are, are amazing at what they do. But we do have limitations because we are working in independent theatre. Um, but it has really challenged people and, and I think everyone's kind of gone, no, no, I'm not going to say no to that. We're going to work out how to do that. And it means that we've kind of gone beyond what we may have done. We're absolutely what we would have done on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was also wondering then how that works in terms of shaping the script for the for the show as well mm. uh, how different it is to a regular process of devising a work given the ideas and energy are coming from from children and children's imaginations as we know are powerful and wonderful things as opposed to jaded kind of 30 something 40 something <laughs> theater makers it's a great point like i think that's where i've been loving working with emily um on the script specifically Emily has a page and a half monologue entirely written by a 10-year-old. Yes. And so to watch Emily learn that monologue and deliver it in the show uh, is a real turning point in the show. But also, like, that's been really challenging. And essentially on the, you know, the, the fourth, third week of, you know, and my fourth school in, I was like, okay, who are the characters that, that deliver this show? And... The, the character of Mr. Thompson, the, the, the director, and <laughs> Emily plays the secretary. Uh, those characters were born from these kids' imaginations. And so the script was really exciting and hilarious. To, it took a lot of time to kind of start to piece together. Yeah. That's why the variety show concept kind of, kind of shone through. So the, the framework then is what a variety show that goes horribly wrong, yes. which uh, for any performers who've worked on, a, on, a, on any sort of show, just the whole idea of the show going off the rails is enough to terrify you. If That's then right. monsters start to, to, to turn up as well to add another layer of fear and horror to proceedings. <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great. So the premise is that, you know, this this um, artist has, out of the kindness of his heart, gone into a, a local school and worked with a bunch of children on this variety show. But unfortunately, most of them have come down with this terrible um, virus. Uh, and so there's only five of them who are able to perform on this particular evening, but they're so kind of shocking to look at that we've had to cover them up. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, yes, hilarity ensues. I can imagine. <laughs> and I think that we performed the preview last night, and the end scene uh, is actually something that Northcote Town Hall has never seen before. We've had to get a lot of Don't permits, get away. and <laughs> there are things that are going to happen that if you I've seen a show at the Northgate Town Hall. You've never seen anything happen like this. <laughs> now, the risk for a show like this is that you're all having enormous fun and it becomes self-indulgent. Talk to us about the process of policing the show so that it still retains a kind of uh, potency and focus and structure mm. while at the same time being loose enough to adapt all of the kids' ideas and incorporate those because that strikes me as, as yeah. a real creative challenge in some yeah. ways. Yeah, and I think it's really honouring those 200-plus kids that we've worked with and their stories and their voice and their ideas 
And there was a moment last week where we all sat down with the cast and we handed over this material also to them and we said, this is not only your role to play, but it's it's kind of thinking about all those awesome kids that you'll never meet. Some of them are, live, you know, miles and miles away in another country, but we're here for them and we're performing their ideas as well as your ideas on stage. So it's quite special, actually, and it's a really special feeling in the theatre. It is, and I, I, I just kind of feel like it's really hard to become self-indulgent when you are working with kids because they keep you really grounded um, and they and they keep you on your toes. And, you know, I yeah, it's 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 a very kind of different experience. It, and it is, it's, it's really been a lovely thing to be able to kind of honour a whole bunch of ideas that have come from a massive collaborative of experience. People say you shouldn't work with children and animals, <laughs> Emily. Have you worked much with kids in the past? Yeah, a lot, actually. I work a lot with polyglot. Um, I've been working with them for over 10 years now. So, um, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, this is a very different experience, though. I've never really done something where I've, I've been in an adult show with, with kids on stage with me. And so this is a another kind of learning experience for me. But, yeah, I do love it. I don't believe in that saying at all, even though we may well use it in the show. <laughs> <laughs> the, the notion of uh, not just giving children agency but mm. recognising that children are artists in their own right is really yeah. something that's been kind of percolating up uh, in in the arts generally kind of over the last decade or so mm. when kind of uh, people at St Martin st- suddenly started going, well, we're not just going to put in a show a, a script kind of that in which kids are acting the kids are making the show the kids are making shows for adults how do you think that has changed the way that art goers and kind of art makers look at the world because they're now being able to see it through kids eyes do you think that has changed creative processes cre- creative approaches more generally yeah i think so i think that there's a real importance in an outward looking sector a sector that empowers people who might not readily access the arts, empowers people who might not normally have a voice. I think we're seeing that a lot in these climate change um, protests uh, and the children are arising and giving uh, given power and sometimes, you know, told off for having that power. And I think mm. there's a really exciting friction there that we're definitely trying to uh, look at in this show. And in this process specifically, I think in all my works, uh, I, th- I like to think of engagement, of, of engaging community of all ages. And in this one, it was very important to bring a true creative process to young people that might not readily access the arts and work in schools and art centres who were really interested in engaging new audiences, but also kind of bringing people from their community in. At Northcote Town Hall and Darabin Council have been really active in that and to work with this amazing team, uh, especially what Emily was saying about having all this experience and working with kids, has really um, given given it a real importance for me um, in this process. And I hope it kind of... Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And I, I just think, you know, our, our director, um, Sarah, is doing her PhD in in working with children in, in the arts in an ethical um, kind of way. And it's been really great to work with her as well, because she's brought up time and time again, which is something that I know very well f- kind of from working with Polyglot as well, is the idea that uh, the children aren't our kind of future makers. They can be our present makers and collaborators 
spectators as well. And I think as a as a theatre going audience, it just it it kind of pushes the the boundaries out to so many more wonderful possibilities. If we're all having this conversation together, whatever the conversation is about, you know, and we do have to have really important conversations that do need to include children. So I think you know making art is is a really great way to do that. The cabin is a horror show written by kids for adults uh, and it's on uh, at the Northcote Town Hall Arts Centre 189 High Street, Northcote the Northcote Town Hall tram stop right outside very easy to get to on top of Rucker's Hill Uh, so it uh, previewed last night and is running through until next Saturday the 13th of July That's right. Uh, tickets range from uh, 34 bucks full 28 concession is tonight opening night or another? It is. Yes ah. so chookers for that. Thank you uh, and then running through as you said until Saturday the 13th of July uh, next Thursday the 11th of July there's an Auslan interpreted performance at 8pm uh, on Saturday the 13th of July at 2pm there's a relaxed performance mm-hmm. uh, in case there are kids or members of your family and friends who for whom kind of the really bright lights and loud sounds of theatre might be a little bit overwhelming uh, and uh, there's an audio described performance on Saturday the 13th of July uh, at 2pm as well so uh, more info at darabinarts.com.au forward slash the cabin no exclamation mark <laughs> but the show itself is called the cabin <laughs> uh, and it sounds like it's going to be an absolute blast I've been chatting with Joff and Emily Tom Thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Richard. And again, chukas for tonight. Thank you. Triple R. My final guest for the morning has joined us in the studio. Composer, musician, songwriter, performance artist Cat Hope joins us to talk about sub-decorative sequences. Bit of a tongue twister at Linden New Art Cat. Nice to have you in. Thanks, Richard. Great to be here. So this is one of three exhibitions at Linden New Art in St Kilda, and it marks the first time that Linden is dedicating all of its galleries to sound art. So that's right. I think it's. Uh, the, I think Juliet said it's around fifteen years since they've done sound art in that space. So uh, no pressure then for you to <laughs> kind of come up with the goods. That's right. And, you know, uh, curating uh, a group sound art show is always a bit of a challenge because, you've, you know, sound goes everywhere, unlike those images. Yeah. So your work, Sub-Decorative Sequences, you're uh, taking the what the kind of internal features of Linden, the building itself, it's uh, kind of given that for people who know the building, it's an old kind of Victorian era kind of building. So you're kind of responding to that physical environment sonically. That's right. So what I've done is I've taken the decorative features of the building, so things like the ceiling, roses, the very decorative uh, door frames. Um, There's fireplaces in every room um, and they're very elaborate. Um, They're marble and they have coloured tiles. So my work is a a graphic score and the materials of the score are taken from the decorative elements. So I traced over drawings uh, and photographs I made of the of these features and I use the colours from the fireplaces as the basis of the scores that I made and they're applied to the walls in the main gallery um, using hand cut vinyl and, and paint In terms of kind of 
transforming those physical elements into sonic elements. Talk us through that process, because unless you're a synesthetist, for example, <laughs> in which case you kind of might look at the colour of a wall and hear a particular sound, uh, I think for most people that idea of trying to translate the physical kind of layout of a building into sound. How do, how do you do that? Talk us through that. Yeah, so it's not quite as literal as that. So what I've done is um, my composition practice is a graphic one, which means that I use, um, when I write music, I don't use traditional materials for music. So most people are familiar with traditional notation, right? Yeah. Crotchets and quavers and staves and treble clefs and so on. I don't use any of that. Um, it's much more um, like a drawing practice. Um, and that's because I'm in interested in things like long form sounds like drones I'm interested in chance procedures for musicians to choose what pitch they want um, so you know I can take these materials like lines and circles and um, patterns and turn them into musical material so it's basically just changing the idea of what a music score looks like and then it needs musicians to play it to sound it so at the moment it's just a score on the wall and that's why we're having a series of performances in the space having said that the main room um it uses these decorative elements but there's also a subtone part which is something i'm i'm very passionate about in my practice is low frequency sound so there's another room which has got a huge bass amp in it that produces bass sound throughout the whole whole show and that's also part of the score um so when the live pieces are played it's part of that end result um but so there's there's it makes sound as well but the decorative aspects of the building need to be sounded by instruments to be heard yeah do you have to train musicians to read your scores do you have a a core group of musicians you work with regularly for example that's a great question um so technically anyone could read these scores but i find that they're always the results are much better when you use trained musicians because trained musicians have really great listening skills and they understand the elements of proportion really well so um, I do work with um, the same artist over and over again um, and uh, part of one of the final performances on the 29th of August features Decibel New Music which is an ensemble I've directed for 10 years this year actually Um, so that, that development of that ensemble and the development of my own composition practice have kind of gone line in line but also I have three singers that sung in my opera which is another work that used a you know um, took material from somewhere else for a music score Um, they'll be singing it on the 20th of July so um, yeah I do return to the same musicians again and again um, because I think you learn a certain approach that you can can develop over time what would happen if you dragged in a group of new musicians who you've never worked with before who aren't familiar with your form of notation and your composition style what yeah. would result do you think cacophony well, or <laughs> delight it works different you know it depends a lot on the type of instrument so things that can sustain sound for a long time always work best <laughs> for in my music so a cello or yep any string instrument um electronics you know so in the opening we had uh, the monash uh, animated notation ensemble which is a group from monash uni where i where i'm a head of school up there and um they had a modular synth so you know obviously electronic instruments can go for as long as you can plug them into the wall um but yeah most people would be able to work it out it just every score comes with a set of very basic instructions um and the idea is that you can choose whatever pitch you want but once you 
choose that pitch you have to kind of stick with it and work listen very carefully to the other musicians as as the piece unfolds so the piece on the wall it's kind of all encompassing in the space but for the musicians they read it off an ipad so that the score gets put in motion and it makes it much easier to coordinate the performance so it's not a free-for-all to avoid that cacophony (laughs) you're talking about Talk to us about, in terms of your practice as as a composer and as somebody who's fascinated by sound professionally but also personally, how far back does this uh, fascination kind of extend? When did you begin to experiment with sound? Um, well, I trained as a classical flautist, so I went to university and, and studied classical music and was very disillusioned at the end of that. I don't think I really understood sound as a material until much later uh, when I started playing in bands and started improvising and exploring what what sound means so I guess you could say you know given that I'm in my 50s it's been going my interest has been going for a while now but something happened I lived in Europe for um in the in the early 90s uh in Catania in Sicily um, on the side of Etna which is the active volcano there and something definitely happened during that period where I became completely obsessed with low frequency and basically since that time everything I've done has got some connection to low frequency sound and that's because of its um, warmth um, and the vibration aspect so the, the idea that you can experience sound in a way other than listening through your ears but through your skin and um, I've become kind of interested in the way very low sounds affect other sounds outside that range and so my notation practice is usually something to do with that and uh, you know some sound art uh, installation stuff I don't notate but I've been in the last 10 years I've been become increasingly interested in how to notate the materiality of sound rather than instructions for musicians um, so this this work is part of that process I suppose how did the volcano influence this kind of was it subsonic sound from the volcano that that triggered this that spurred this yeah and listening to that listening to it and feeling it and and the way that it impacted the lives of all the people that lived there um, and the danger of it as well. There was all these different aspects and I don't think I realised that at the time. I've just looked back on it. I, I did my PhD on the possibility of infrasonic music, which is this idea that music can be something more than the way we typically experience it in a certain frequency range, but music could be something that's a lot more visceral and I think that's something that Mona Roos in her... Uh, her piece in this exhibition explores because she has a vibrating bed so you lie on that and the, the sound becomes the tactile um, so there's a you know and that, that that's a big contrast to Lucretia Quintanilla's work upstairs which is very small sounds so that the, the I think the three works in this exhibition all explore the materiality of sound in quite different ways yeah if you've just tuned in I'm speaking with Cat Hope uh, and she's uh, kind of presenting sub-decorative sequences at Linden New Art. Uh, and there are three sound art pieces that Linden is currently devoted to, uh, running through until the 1st of September. Now, Kat, you are, as well as being a composer, sound artist and musician, an academic, and you, you, you're the, what, professor at the Sir Zelman Cowan School of Music out at Monash University. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued, given that you said by the end of your own studies, as a, going back in the day when you were studying as a, as a flautist, you said you were disillusioned. How do you prevent your, the current students out at Monash from being disillusioned by the study of music as well? Great question. I think my disillusionment came from... I was very interested in new music and experimentalism and that was seen as some kind of lesser art. I think music, unlike the visual arts, still struggling with that art um, concept versus craft 
problem. <laughs> um, and I think that the best way, I mean, music, it's such a, so great, so much fun to engage with music. And I think the main thing in um, terms of training young people is to train them not just in the craft but also in the concept of music and thinking about music as something that has uh, legacy forms but also this incredible potential for innovation and um, getting them to engage with both aspects of that. Um, and I think that you know doing music for three years is such a great great fun experience and uh, it doesn't have to be any particular way what you have to do is provide students with a whole range of opportunities and ideas and then eventually about halfway through the degree they start deciding where they're going to go and it's great to see people um, take make that choice and and go on that direction because music it's it's so rich there's so many different aspects to it and um, it's hard to cram all of them into a three-year degree so if you can teach students to be critical thinkers and really engage with the idea of music as well as the making of it, I think you're, you're getting somewhere. Now, it's kind of telling that the, uh, as you've said, that yourself and the two other artists currently uh, showing the sound art at Linden New Art, all uh, female kind of artists and composers in a field that is often very male-dominated, if we're talking about sound art, which kind of ties in with the Peggy Glanville-Hicks address that you gave last year as well, looking at kind of gender equality in music. It's currently a very hot topic in the opera sector, for example. Yeah. Uh, and my, my opera keeps coming up in that discussion as well. And that would be your opera Speechless that premiered yep. at the Perth Festival mm. earlier this year. At what point will you feel, will you know that the tide is turning for women in, in opera, in composition and in sound art more generally? Um. That's a difficult question. I think it is starting to turn because these discussions are now happening out in the open. I think that's already a really great um, change and I'm glad that I've had some part in that because the Piggy Gamble Hicks address went to three states, um, which I think was really great. And this this, uh, women in opera thing is really getting a bit of traction. Um, Sally Blackwood, Lisa Lim and um, there's a, a group of women who are kind of behind this project uh, really giving it, getting it some traction. It's interesting to see the defensive uh, quality that's coming out in some of the writing. I've been witnessing that <laughs> firsthand on my Facebook page. It's a bit of a, yeah, yawn, you know. Um, and this thing about new music, no one likes new music. Well, there's there's so many different types of new music out there. Um, and I think there's no kind of one new music, just like there's no opera. So I think opera is an interesting thing for this debate to be centering on because it's such a multimedia form it can be so many different things um and i think it's time for everyone you know half the audience are women if not more it's time to have around about the same uh in terms of composers and have works that are relevant to our lives today and i think a lot of the debate around opera has been around how the the texts or the basis of operas are often from a different time we don't really think like that about women anymore we don't talk about women that way anymore so why not commission works which talk about women or or feature life or the big issues of today about today not from 300 years ago so people always love Puccini I love Puccini I love traditional opera Um, I don't want to write it Uh, so I think um, we'll know it's changed when uh, people feel that contemporary work reflects their own interests and that they listen to new music and they go yeah I really relate to that and I think it's happening I think it's possible we just need big organisations to program that kind of thing and not composers that are writing music that sounds like it was written 150 years ago if uh 
given that opera is such a versatile art form, clearly then sound art is also as equally versatile. Do you think that the... Uh, <coughs> your work and the work of the, the two other artists showing at Linden kind of show some of the versatility of sound art as a form? I, I think it does. And I'm going to say something a bit controversial here and just say that I think sound art is just the new and most exciting music. You know, people talk about sound art as being something that lives in the art world, and let's say opera is something that lives very much in the music world, or and theatre is a little bit in between. But I actually think that sound art is just the new music. It's it's really foregrounding sound as a material, um, as musicians have always done. You know, that's always been at the core of of composers' practice. So I think that um, we've got to kind of get over all these different categories and just engage with all the different ways that sound can manifest. It can manifest sculpturally on a recording. You know, you were talking about um, the materiality of CDs. There's all these different ways that we can think about music and how it disseminates in the world. I think sound art's just another, another chapter of that. If you head along to Linden New Art at 26 Ackland Street, St Kilda, you can experience a range of sound art practices, including a sound bath. Uh, you can lie on a bed and be vibrated. You can hear live performances of Cat Hope's scores, which are kind of uh, presented in Linden New Art and are responding to the physicality of the building itself. Uh, the, uh, the the works currently showing at Linden are on until the 1st of September, and and uh, that go to www.lindenarts.org for more detail. Linden New Art, as I said, located at 26 Ackland Street, St Kilda. If you're familiar with theatre works, it's just further down the hill. If you're more familiar with the cake shops in Ackland Street, it's up the hill. <laughs> That's right. Cat Hope, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.